Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bernstein Insights, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. Today, we're talking about disruption. We've talked about disruption a number of times on this podcast, but today it's specific to the retail sector. Retail, as I mentioned, is not the only area that is being disrupted, but it is one of the ones that we all deal with on an almost daily basis. And so for that reason, I'm pleased to have my colleague, Greg Young, Senior Portfolio Manager, on the phone to help us talk through all of his insights and research findings related to this space. So Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. So let's begin our discussion. There's a lot to cover. I've often heard you say that retail is not dead. That's a pushback to a lot of the concerns that are out there about the retail industry. Explain to our listeners what you mean by retail is not dead. Sure, Matt. The retail is not dead, but it's clearly undergoing a lot of change. Um, this is a sector that has endured its share of disruption over the years, and we're certainly witnessing that firsthand today. But a lot of companies will survive, even thrive. We think that characteristics of those companies that can survive in this space will be those that really emphasize, for instance, a personalized shopping experience that that can offer immediacy and convenience to their customers. And certainly those that can provide good customer service, uh, those that can be competitive on the price front, and especially those that can offer something unique or signature products. We think Any or all of those characteristics will lead to greater market share. So it sounds like you're laying out a game plan for those in the retail sector that want to survive. Before we get there, let's go back over history a little bit and talk about the experience of stocks in the market. How consistent has their performance been over time as these challenges have built? That's a good question. Contrary to the way a lot of people think about the retail sector today, It's actually been a pretty successful sector for many years. You look back over, say, the last decade or so, and the S&P retail sector here in the U.S. has actually outperformed the broader market by quite a wide margin. The difference is, or the crux is, that those gains have not been widely shared. We've seen significant divergence between the more successful companies. Think of the high flyers like Ulta, cosmetics on one end, and then at the other end, some of those struggling retailers like Bed Bath & Beyond would be a good example. uh, Bed Bath & Beyond being one, Circuit City another, that have totally been disrupted. Why is that disruption occurring? You know, the disruption is really occurring because consumer tastes, as we know, are always changing. They're always evolving, and certainly technology has upended a lot of business models. But Really, at the core of this, the disruption is coming from who's making those buying decisions today. And in a word, it's the millennials. Think of the 20 to 30-year-olds in this country. They're now the largest demographic group today. It's larger than even the baby boomers or the Gen X. And as a result, they have the greatest spending power. They're really redefining consumerism because their behaviors, their habits, their tastes, they really differ drastically from the generations that came before them. Yeah, so I guess top of mind for retailers would have had to have been adapting given this new powerful force that comes into their stores every day. I guess if they don't or haven't, what happens? Yeah, if retailers don't adapt, they will fail. Uh, We've seen this happen time and again. The U.S. is 
really littered with defunct retailers that failed to evolve, um, either because they had high fixed cost or management was just reluctant to embrace change. Um, and retailers that do fail, frankly, face a much higher than average likelihood of eventually going to zero because new business models come along that just do a better job of catering to customer preferences. And, you know, another factor that we have to mention, part of this failure over time has really come from the ownership structure. A lot of these retailers that filed for Chapter 11 protection were owned at least in part by private equity. And the PE model, which was characterized by high debt, um, along with the change in bankruptcy laws, really accelerated the liquidation of a lot of these retailers. So it was a, it was a compounding effect. It was a challenging environment to begin with. Add on an enormous amount of leverage or, or debt in your cost structure and some changes in the legal structure, and it's almost a case closed for them. Absolutely. Let, let's move back to what you had said earlier. You were laying out the game plan, if you will, for how retailers can survive in this more challenging or at least evolving marketplace. How is it that a retailer can win going forward? Retailers need to first identify a successful sales strategy, and they need to adapt those strategies to the changing whims of consumers. If they don't, they will fail. So what do we mean by a sales strategy? Well, it's characterized by some combination of price, assortment, convenience, and service. And we think retailers can generally pick at least two of these areas to be strong in. And consumers really desire different combinations of these strategies depending on the product that they're buying. You know, just a quick example, a customer that wants to buy a gallon of milk, for instance, wants it to be convenient and available at a fair price. So the sales strategy there nat naturally is some combination of price and convenience. I want to I lay out those four factors that you had mentioned because I think they're really important. We'll, we'll explore them a little bit more. But you said price, assortment, convenience, and service. I guess as I think about that, Retailing or all retailers are not the same. It's not a monolith where they're all competing on the same level, providing the same goods or services. So um, it must be that more uh, or, or retailers are have different levels of vulnerability. Is that true in your opinion? Yeah, very much so. The the retailers that focus that their sales strategy, as it were, is some combination of price and assortment or price and convenience are really the most susceptible to being disrupted, uh, for instance, by e-commerce. Um, whereas strategies that focus more on the service end, taking care of the customer directly, helping to answer questions, explain features, and really help the customer come to a buying decision, something that's very difficult, if not impossible, to do online. We think those types of retailers uh, are least vulnerable to disruption from e-commerce. I want to get to the other areas beyond e-commerce that are disruptive. But before we get there, maybe just go a little bit further on the price aspect. And there was another factor that if that's a main part of your value proposition as a big box retailer, for example, why is it that you are the most or more vulnerable than others to e-commerce? What is it about e-commerce that makes you easily disrupted? 
That's a great question because e-commerce has been disrupted because it really brings three uh, tremendous advantages to the consumer. First is a virtually unlimited selection of goods. Think about Amazon, for example. Amazon on their website, they have today well over half a billion items that are for sale. And that number increases every day as more sellers move onto the platform. So it's a tremendously wide selection. The second disruptive characteristic is, is really price transparency. Now consumers can be standing in, a, in an aisle and price comparing the goods that they see in front of them versus what other retailers are offering that. So that really brings price alignment and was one of the factors that has been so disruptive uh, with many retailers, particularly those that were um, financed through private equity that had a very hard time that with their high cost structures really adapting to a world of lower prices. And then the third and final factor is convenience, right? The ability to order from anywhere, receive that item in a couple of days or sometimes even same day has really provided a tremendous value proposition. So uh, it's made e-commerce a very disruptive force in retail. As you look over the industry and, and e-commerce in particular, is there anything that e-commerce, I guess, is missing? Are, are there any white space areas that can be taken advantage of against e-commerce? Uh, clearly. In fact, e-commerce can do a lot of things, but it can't do everything. One of the most important defenses, as it were, is really customer service. We think about it this way. Uh, products that require some sort of service to explain how to use that particular product are far less suited for e-commerce. Think of sort of do-it-yourself home repairs as an example. Uh, there's another characteristic of the service component that we label sort of the treasure hunt. Think of these as, you know, bargains or unique finds or impulse buys that really cannot be replicated online. Examples of these would be off-price retailers like TJ Maxx. Another defense against e-commerce is really price leadership. Just because something is sold online doesn't mean that it's always the cheapest. Companies that have you know, a competitive advantage through their fulfillment network, whether because they operate in certain lower cost parts of the country or they just have developed a very, very efficient uh, warehousing system, think of Walmart and their distribution centers as a good example, really helps them bring a very um, strong defense against uh, the inroads made by e-commerce. And then the third defense really has to do with exclusive products. Just because there's almost an unlimited selection out there, there are unique products or variations, size variations of products that sometimes you can only find uh, at a brick-and-mortar retailer. The Probably the easiest example here would be uh, the home improvement stores like Home Depot and Lowe's. They tend to sell a lot of products uh, and or size variations of those products that for instance, Amazon typically sells very little of. I've always been fascinated by the ability of online retailers to customize to my preferences. I guess it's also a little bit weird if you think about it, but I, I look past that fairly easily because I do get fairly targeted advertisements or otherwise. How is it that online retail, Amazon or otherwise, is able to accomplish that? 
Really, the way they do that, Matt, is by collecting customer data. In fact, this is probably the most important strategy that any retailer can execute on. Um, how good a job do they do at collecting uh, information on their customers? Uh, typically, this will happen through loyalty programs, uh, product registrations, websites, etc. And it's that type of data that helps retailers really target their marketing to be more customized or to personalize something for their customers. Um, they can also use that data to generate cost savings for customers and, of course, to increase the buying power of the retailer themselves. So it really can be an almost as a required component in order to successfully defend against e-commerce. I know it's, it's a little bit uh, off topic because it's not exactly a retailer, but this can also go, it's not exactly wrong, but I think of Netflix in my home, you know, because my daughter watches Netflix as much as she does, Netflix thinks that I'm an eight-year-old girl when it makes recommendations back to me, but that's, I guess, beside, <laughs> beside the point for a little bit. You, you had mentioned, you had mentioned uh, that there are other areas of disruption beyond e-commerce. What else uh, is on your list? Yeah, e-commerce is uh, probably the most obvious to folks, and it's certainly a large component, but it's it's not limitless. Uh, there are really two other areas of disruption. The first is the physical reorientation of all that square footage. Think about those stores, those retailers that survive e-commerce. We think they're going to see a lower amount of square footage in their physical stores and in many instances, a reconfiguration of that space. You know, a quick example of that might be, we think grocery stores uh, will be very much exposed to this as the average size of a typical U.S. grocery store shrinks from something like 40,000 square feet down to something more like 10,000 square feet. The next area of disruption is in consolidation. There's just far too many retailers. This is more of a factor in the U.S. than it is outside the U.S. Uh, here in our country, we just have a lot of competitors that had the same products, the same model, and the same category. Um, and there's just not enough uh, demand, even in a country our size, to support all of those. So we think that uh, continuing shakeout will uh, accelerate. We've already seen a lot of that happen particularly among specialty retailers. Uh, we think that's going to continue to condense down to probably no more than one specialist in each category um, as stores continue to consolidate. Let's stay with this physical reorganization that you mentioned. You talked about grocery, but how about the, the big box retailers like uh, Macy's, for example? How can they accomplish this reorganization? Yeah, the big department stores that have traditionally been located in malls are another example or a good example of how they'll be impacted is we're seeing a move to more focused, smaller footprint stores, particularly when they're in dense urban locations. Um, they can curate their material or their products to be much more in line um, to the specific geography that they're serving there. And all of these concepts obviously come with a much lower amount of square footage. Um, we're also seeing, you mentioned Macy's, a, a great example of what's happening with that company. They purchased 
a company called Story, which is a New York City-based concept. And Story is an interesting example because in the same square footage, they're constantly rotating their themes and changing out not only the look of the square footage, but they're rotating in and out the types of products that they're selling. So Macy's bought Story to really create sort of a boutique feel within the larger store, really in response to this drive to being smaller and more targeted to the consumers. Okay, Greg. So to this point, you've talked about disruption in retailing as um, components of e-commerce, physical reorganization, and then this last piece, which I want you to discuss, which is consolidation. It would seem like consolidation is an absolute necessity. Um, Is that the third leg of the stool, if you will? Yeah, very much so. It's just the case that here in the U.S., we are overstored. A lot of that is because the retail industry is extremely fragmented. By our count, there are over 600,000 retail companies in the U.S. that have, believe it or not, fewer than 20 employees. So way too many um, small companies. Another contributor to this overstored phenomenon was really this era of giant malls uh, that were so prevalent back in the 60s and 70s. And then that was followed by big box retail, uh, you know, epitomized, for instance, by Walmart super centers. So we're certainly seeing upheaval in retail that's caused by e-commerce and the repurposing of of so much legacy real estate. But this consolidation theme um, is clearly going to sweep through uh, the retail sector in the U.S. It's just almost inevitable. You mentioned malls, and I know there's been changes afoot in the mall that we have all come to know and love. What does the mall look like five or ten years from now? Yeah, you know, e-commerce, among its uh, many influences, it's really changed how consumers want to shop. It used to be that when we thought of convenience, that was always synonymous with location. So you had centrally located malls that offered shoppers a way to do all of their shopping in one place, to consolidate all of their shopping needs uh, into one location. And that steady stream of foot traffic was a big draw then to the smaller specialty retailers that you would typically see in the malls. Um, Now, though, those physical advantages have largely gone away because of the convenience of ordering from one's couch. So e-commerce has very much disrupted location-based convenience. So as a result of that, developers are having to rethink what to do with that real estate. So the malls, they're not going away per se, but what they look like, what they entail is going to be different. So we think the malls, since there's less need for one-stop shopping, it's got to be something that's more along the lines of providing an experience, catering to some specialty or niche or treasure hunt plays. It could be a combination of boutique shops and restaurants and residential Obviously, theaters would be a part of that, but even professional office parks. Really think of it just as a new way to use old space. I want you to keep your crystal ball out and broaden out your focus to the entire retail sector. If we were to look out again, let's just say five or ten years, what does retail in general look like relative to where we are today? 
Well, in a word, what's old will be new again. Um, you know, you can think of this as really a return to the old ways of shopping. Uh, when going to the store, it was an experience. They had pony rides. It had entertainment. It was back in the days before retailers simply tried to see how many products they could sell above all else. So the store of the future will almost certainly have great customer service. We'll have an inviting visual design. It'll be easy to navigate layouts, convenient experiences that most importantly, that are memorable. It's that experience as a word that's really going to be the defining feature, something that's unique and that offers a quality or treasures as it were that you just can't find online. Shoppers will be loyal to retailers who are not only provide the experiences, but really to take it a step further, those retailers that are in sync with their values. Think of the millennials again. The retailers, whether it's from their brand image to the products that they sell all the way down to the supplier shoppers, that's going to be a very important feature of the types of companies that will succeed going forward. Well, Greg, we're, we're certainly all looking forward to seeing how this plays out. I want to um, finish where we started, which is with your comment that retail is not dead. Really, if I was to understand what you said, it's just changing. And there's an evolution afoot in this sector, an important one, and it's driven by disruption. So thanks very much. In our next podcast, we will visit again with you, and you'll talk through some of the disruption happening specifically in the grocery space. So thanks very much for your time. And until then, we appreciate you listening to Bernstein Insights, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.